The scripture reading from today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and brother of Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so I am a seminary student and I'm working on a uh, Master of Divinity and a Master of Arts in Counseling. So I have to do a lot of reading. And most of it's nonfiction and most of the books have an introduction. And I imagine any time an author of like a theological book or something like that sits down to write an introduction, they're wondering, is anyone actually going to read this? Um, because there are two questions that I ask myself every time I pick up one of those books. The first question is, am I going to be tested on this? And if the answer is no, I skip it. The second question I ask is, am I interested in this? And if the answer is no, I skip it. I'll give you an example. Um... About a month ago, I had to read this 400-page book on John Calvin's use of the word participation in his writings. So I asked myself the first question, is this going to be on the test, the introduction? No. Am I interested in this? No. So I did not read that introduction. Conversely, a few weeks ago, it's summer for me, even though I've taken four classes this summer, so there's something I get to do about twice a year, and that's read something that I actually just choose to read. So, naturally, I chose to read a book on the history of heavy metal. (laughs) And so I asked myself, when I I picked up that book and saw the introduction, is this going to be on a test? No. But am I interested in this? Yes. Absolutely. And just so you know, you all need to be aware, Tampa is the home of death metal. It all started here. So, but here's the thing. I've realized that when I come to books of the Bible, um, especially letters, I tend to kind of just skim the first few verses because it's introduction kind of material. Um, If you look at this, it's the author saying who he is and if he's hanging out with somebody, who he's writing to, and then some introductory sort of remarks. And I, I almost kind of think of it as like the filler that you have to get through before you get to the good stuff. And of course I read it because I want to be a good Christian and say that I read the whole book but I usually don't pay that much attention to it. Um, the funny thing is, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18 um, and going to the end of the chapter, is probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture because it's gotten me through some hard times. And when I was in college, um, I memorized that whole chunk of Scripture. 
But until about three weeks ago, I couldn't have told you what happened at the beginning of that chapter. Um, But something changed. What changed is I took a class on Paul's epistles. It was taught by a professor from Knox Seminary named Jonathan Linebaugh. And when he talked about 1 Corinthians, he described these first three verses um, in a way that gave them weight and importance. And he said that understanding this is the key, not just to understanding 1 Corinthians, but to understanding Paul's theology and really to understanding the gospel. And the more I've chewed on it, uh, the more I really believe that that's true. And so that's kind of what I want to share with you guys today. Um, So first, I'm going to give you a little bit of background information because you guys have been camping out in Genesis for quite a long time. So I'll I'll tell you a little bit about 1 Corinthians and then I'll tell you why I think these three verses are so important. Um, In Acts 18, it gives sort of the historical account of Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, Paul goes to Corinthians and he preaches there for about a year and a half. And he plants a church. Most of the converts are Gentiles, meaning they're not Jews. And so Paul's opponents, who were Jews, uh, kind of st- start to stir up controversy. And he eventually has to end up going before the Roman proconsul, who's named Gallio. Now, recently, archaeologists have found uh, this inscription in central Greece that said Gallio was the Roman proconsul in the year 52 AD. And Roman proconsuls normally only served for a year, so that means probably Paul went before Gallio in about 52 AD. From there, he went on to Judea and Syria just briefly, and then he went to Ephesus for about three years. And toward the end of his time there is when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth that he had planted. Um, So probably wrote it between 53 to 55 AD, which is about 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Um, Paul had previously written a letter to Corinth that we don't have anymore. So our first Corinthians actually isn't the letter that he first wrote to the Corinthians, but he references it in chapter five and six, and it had to deal with sexual immorality. And since that time, Paul received oral reports about things that were going on in Corinth, and then the Corinthian church actually wrote him a letter asking him questions about doctrinal issues, about marriage, about how to be Christians in a pagan culture, and lots of questions. So basically, 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to these oral reports and to the letter that the Corinthians sent. Um, You can change the slide. So the city of Corinth um, is located on an isthmus. So that poses two challenges. One, it's very hard to pronounce isthmus. (laughs) Two, you have to think back to elementary school social studies class to even know what an isthmus is. Um, It's basically a a little strip of land that's surrounded by water on two sides and it connects two bigger pieces of land. So if you see Corinth here um, is on that little strip and it's connecting this Peloponnesian 
peninsula to the greater Greek uh, mainland there. And what that meant is there was uh, lots of traffic. There was a lot of trade there. There were lots of uh, sailors going, and people would actually, rather than sailing around that whole peninsula, they would pay to get their ships carried over that little isthmus. I'm just trying to say that as much as I can. Um, So what that meant is a lot of culture was there. A lot of different religions were there. And on top of that, Corinth was a Roman colony, which meant um, the worship of Greek gods was part of their law and just their everyday culture. So being a Christian in that context was very countercultural and not in like a cool punk rock kind of way, but in a way that probably everybody thought they were weird because most of the food would have been food that was sacrificed to gods. And so they, a lot of them wouldn't eat that and they wouldn't participate in these festivals. And so people thought that they were weird and isolated. Um, so <clears throat> getting to the letter now, Paul is basically addressing a laundry list of problems that the Corinthian church has. Um, So next slide. And we're just going to go kind of through the book and just pull out a few verses, um, not even hit all of them, but these were some of the bigger issues that the Corinthian church had. In chapter 1, 11, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people, which was one of the house churches in Corinth, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what they were quarreling about is, in just three years' time, they were basically starting different denominations. Because some people said, well, I follow Paul's teaching. And some people said, well, I follow Apollo's teaching. And so Paul's kind of having to call them out and say, you need to be unified because you're following Christ's teaching, not mine or someone else's. And then um, in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So jealousy and strife and division was a big issue. And he's saying, after you have been doing this for some of you five years, you're still having these dumb issues. In uh, chapter 5, this is a biggie. Verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And what Paul is saying is, you're surrounded by idolaters, by sailors, um, by temple prostitutes, and you, as the church in Corinth, are doing things that those people won't even do. And he goes on to say that these people are actually boasting about what they're doing. Um... In chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
Again, we see this theme of divisions. And what Paul's specifically talking about here is when they come together for the Lord's Supper. And um, as a lot of commentators understand it, basically what was going on is there were some people in the church that were kind of wealthy landowners and aristocrats who didn't really have to work. And then there were some that were basically working poor. And on the days that they would come together to have the Lord's Supper... The rich people who didn't have to work would get there early, and by the time the poor people had gotten off work to have this meal, the rich people had already eaten all the food and gotten drunk. And so the Lord's Supper, the meal that commemorates the new covenant in Jesus' blood, a meal that was meant to promote unity, was actually promoting disunity in the Corinthian church. Um, In chapter 14, Paul says, But all things should be done decently and in order, which means things were not being done decently and in order when they got together. In fact, uh, this is one of the chapters in 1 Corinthians that you might be familiar with when Paul's addressing the issue of spiritual gifts. And he's saying, that it's kind of a free-for-all when they come together. And people are just speaking in tongues and shouting out things, and it looks like nonsense. And to a culture where they're already considered weirdos, if someone's visiting and comes in, it's like chaos, like everyone's drunk. Uh, And then the last one that we'll look at in chapter 15, verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the very cornerstone of our faith that Jesus didn't just die, but that he rose three days later and promises that for us who have faith in him, we will be raised with him. They didn't even believe this. So basically, everything that Paul had taught them in that year and a half They'd already thrown it out the window. And I want to ask you, if you had spent a year and a half with these people, preaching the gospel, establishing house churches, working your own way so that they wouldn't have to pay for you while you're there, giving your heart, and once you're gone, even praying with tears and writing them letters while you're in the middle of other things, If you did all that, and this is the report you got, what would you say to these people? This is going to be a a much um, less important illustration, but I want to tell you about one of my drum students. I I teach drum lessons, and I have this little seven-year-old girl named Jaden, and she is so stinking cute. But she is not good at drums. And um, so she's been taking lessons for about six months now. And our very first drum lesson, I was like, okay, this is the drum set. I'm going to tell you what everything's called. You're like, what's that one called? What's that one called? Every single time I quiz her on it, what's that one called? What's that one called? And she had it. So after like the fifth lesson, I quit asking her. The other thing I did is I showed her how to hold the drumsticks. And most kids naturally pick up drumsticks and kind of hold them like that. 
And so I kind of made this joke with her. I'm like, okay, that's how cavemen hold drumsticks. But you're a drummer. So here's how drummers hold drumsticks. Well, don't you know, six months later, she's coming in. She's still having to play the same dumb beat every lesson. And it's clear to me that this girl hasn't practiced. And she picks up her drumsticks like a freaking caveman. And I'm thinking, I just asked you to hit the snare and you hit the floor, Tom. You should know what the snare is by now. It's like the second most popular drum on the drum kit, you know. And uh, I mean, of course, I don't say this to her because she's cute and I want her to like me. But, uh, But I'm honestly thinking, you are not a drummer. You're not acting like a drummer. You don't feel like a drummer. You don't even practice. You're not a drummer. But if we were to look at this list, this isn't even all the issues. If you have your Bible and you just flip through and look at the subject headings, you're going to see more weird sins and um, controversies than these. But these are just the ones that I mentioned to you. If you look at that list and you were to give the Corinthian church a title, what would it be? It would probably be unholy, immoral, adulterer, uh, quarrelsome. But I want you to look at verses 2 and 3. What does Paul call them? Before he addresses any of these issues, the first thing he calls them is church of God. He calls them sanctified in Christ. And the Greek word sanctified, it basically means make holy. He calls them saints which means holy ones. It's the same Greek root as sanctified. So he's basically saying, you are holy, holy ones. You are recipients of grace and peace from God. He doesn't name them based on what they look like or what they act like or even what they feel like, but he names them based on who they truly are. And uh, I agree with my professor, Dr. Leinbaugh. I don't think there are too many things more important than this that we can understand. Because if we get this, then we start to get a glimpse of who we really are in Christ. And we start to realize that the gospel is bigger than we even dare to imagine. Look at... uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 with me. This is the famous chapter where Paul talks about all the things that love is and love isn't. Um, And toward the end, he's talking about what it's going to be like when we move out of the present age where we have Christ, but there's still sin and there's still death and there's still brokenness and corruption And we move into the age to come when Jesus comes back and redeems all things and makes all things new and eradicates sin 
and suffering. And this is what he says. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what Paul is saying here is when we look into the mirror, we don't really see who we actually are. Because the mirror is fogged up by sin and by death and by pain and all the things that are a part of living in a broken, fallen world. And he talks about the day that we will see and we will know fully. But I want you to notice... Sorry, I shouldn't have pointed at that. I'll just... uh... He says, even as I have been, past tense, fully known. As Christians, we have been fully known by God. And I don't know how that strikes you this morning. If I'm being honest, when I look at myself, I don't know that I want to be fully known by God. And I don't really understand what it means to be fully known by God. If we think about the grand scheme of the, of the biblical narrative, um, I know you guys have been going through Genesis. Think back at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were spotless and without sin and they walked with God and talked with God face to face. They had perfect communion with him. And when they sinned, All of creation was corrupted. And God cast them out of the garden. He cast them out of his presence. And there's two ways we could look at this. You could look at this and say, well, God was punishing them for their sin. And that's not a wrong way to look at that. That's the truth. But another way to look at this is God was doing the most loving and gracious thing he could do to sinful human beings, which is cast them out of his presence. Because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is called a consuming fire. And if sinful people went into God's presence, they would be consumed. And so the rest of the Old Testament, from a human's perspective, is asking the question, how can we get back? And if we look at all the weird Levitical laws and all the things that people had to wear and not wear and all the ways that they had to interact with each other and all the things that they had to eat and abstain from eating, and we look at all the rules on how the tabernacle was supposed to be made and how the priest robes were supposed to be made, I think if we look at all of that and step back, it tells us something significant about God that he desperately loves his people and wants them to be brought back into his presence. And this was the way. And he said, okay, all of creation is corrupted. So let's do this. Let's make this one space. Let's make this tabernacle. Let's make this temple. And you're going to have to clean it constantly, 
Sanctify it, make it holy with the blood of bulls and goats, with showbread, with incense. But if you will make this holy space, I will come and fill it. My presence will be there. But inevitably, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't keep all the laws. And of course, that's where Jesus comes in, who came and fulfilled the law for us, who bore God's wrath for our sins. And through Jesus, for those of us who have faith in him, we have the Holy Spirit. Now we can look at that next one. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How is it that God could dwell within sinful, dirty, unholy people? Paul is telling us he can't. God told Jesus, make a space holy, make their hearts holy, and I will come and fill it up. Some people believe a gospel that says, we're sinners, we're, we're a horrible broken mess, but, but God tolerates it. God allows us to come to him anyway. And the truth is, if those of us who are Christians, if, if we were to sit down and say, how did you become a Christian? Most of us became a Christian believing some pretty jacked up theology. Most of us probably had bad doctrine thrown at us. And yet God works through that. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to be Christians. It just means we don't necessarily have the best understanding of things. Just like a five-year-old really doesn't know that he has a spleen. But later you learn stuff like that, you know? Um, But I think there's a danger of thinking about God as simply accepting our mess because I think it diminishes God's holiness and it also diminishes how much God loves us. I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine that your favorite band is coming to Tampa. I'm assuming we're all thinking Radiohead, so I'm just going to use that language. Radiohead's coming to Tampa, and one of your best friends is Tom York's cousin. And your friend says, I'm getting backstage passes, and I can get somebody in. Do you want to go? And you're like, of course I want to go. And so when you go up to Will Call, your friend gives their name. But they don't say your name. They just say, oh, that, that's your plus one. Yeah, this, this guy's with me. And so you go backstage, you get to see the show, you get to hang out with Johnny Greenwood and have a man crush on him. (laughs) But the truth is, they don't really know you. They know your friend. 
And honestly, they couldn't care less whether you're there or not. They didn't invite you. They didn't want you there. But they let you be there because you're your friends plus one. If we think that God simply tolerates our sin, we will start to think of ourselves only as Jesus plus one. That God doesn't actually love us. God doesn't actually want us to be in his presence. But he loves Jesus and... We have faith in Jesus, and so God's like, I guess I'll tolerate this. I think the truth is that Jesus dealt with our sin and made us holy. And that's why Paul calls the Corinthians Holy, holy ones, sanctified saints, the church of God, called by God, recipients of grace and peace. That's who they are. It frees them up to be who God really created them to be. It frees them up to be fully known by God. What if Paul had said... um, Based on your theology and actions, I won't call you saints until I see you acting like it, because I'm just not sure. What he said is, you are holy. So does this mean that we don't need to address sin? Does it mean that our sin doesn't really matter? I think the fact that the bulk of 1 Corinthians is dealing with sins, tells us it matters a lot. It's something that Paul took very seriously. It's something that God takes very seriously, so seriously that his son was murdered for it. But something that you'll never hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians or anywhere else is you need to do this in order to be Christians. Because the fact is, it has been done for us. And he says, if you are in Christ, you are holy. The paradigm that Paul gives from the very beginning is not act like you're holy so that you can be loved and accepted The paradigm that Paul gives is, you are holy, you are loved, you are accepted, so you can live like it. And I've got to be honest, even as I say these things, I think, can this really be true? Can it really be true that God isn't angry at me? Because I have lived most of my life being ashamed and afraid. I'm, uh, I'm in the counseling program in seminary, and um, there's a clinic on site. So as, the program, uh, as part of the program, we actually counsel clients. And once a week, 
we all get to sit in on something called a live session, and it's where a professor and four or five students uh, kind of sit behind a one-way mirror thing. I always forget if it's called a one-way mirror or a two-way mirror, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and we actually get to watch a counselor sit with a client, and the client knows it's not like, you know, it's not weird. Um, <clears throat> But this past week, I got to see uh, this 25-year-old girl. She was a, a beautiful girl. She was dressed really nice. She was very articulate, but she was lifeless. And she was compliant. She just nodded and agreed with anything that the counselor said and gave the right Christian answers. And it was kind of exhausting to watch her. And... Basically, she came from a horrible home where she was mistreated, where her, her father didn't give a rip about her. And when she was 19 years old, she met a man who treated her well and told her about Jesus, and she became a Christian. And six months later, they got married. And so he kind of rescued her from this broken family. But for the past six years, she's just kind of felt like I can't ever actually be good enough for my husband. I can't ever read the Bible as much as him. I don't, I don't pray as much as him. I don't understand theology as much as him. He's got a lot stronger walk with Jesus than I do. And to make matters worse, several months ago, she ran into her high school sweetheart. And she made a bad decision, and she slept with him. And she had to tell her husband that. And what she told us is that she has to live her life in shame, that her husband constantly has a trump card, that she's never going to be good enough for her husband, that she's never going to be good enough for God, and that she's a whore. And I got to see my professor walk in the room as a probably 55-year-old man and sit down across from her with tears in his eyes and say, what if God is different than you think he is? What if God's not angry at you? What if... God created you uniquely to be who you are and he washed you and made you clean and he loves you. He delights in you as a daughter. And her face started to soften and she started to weep. And she said, I wish I could record this so I could go home and listen to it. I need to process this. I need to process this. And what I was seeing happen was her paradigm for her God was starting to change. And she dared to think just for a moment, what if God is different than I thought he was? But before she left, I don't think she ever really believed that that could possibly be true of her that she was holy, that she was beautiful, 
that she was loved, that she was a daughter of the king. And I want to ask you, what if you aren't just a sinner that God tolerates? What if you aren't just Jesus plus one? What if despite all the crap that you know is going on in your life and in your heart, who you actually are is a holy saint? Um, I want to look at Second Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake... He made him, meaning God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to ask you, what is that thing that you're most ashamed of right now? As you think about what makes you afraid of being fully known by your brothers and sisters here, what makes you afraid of being fully known by God? What is the thing that you don't want the person sitting next to you to know that you think, that you do? And we're going to do something kind of weird. What I want you to do is I want you to fill your name in, in the parentheses. And whatever that sin is, I want you to put it in the blank. And I'll give you an example. For Mark's sake, God made Jesus to be lust, who never lusted, so that in Jesus, Mark might become one who never lusts. Let's just take a minute. I don't want you to just read it once. I want you to read it a few times. Some of you already think this is cheesy, but I want you to do it. Can you do that for me? What if this is true? I have one final thought, and then I'll be done. Paul addressed an entire church. This letter was probably passed around. It was probably read to countless people. And Paul knew that there were some people there who probably weren't Christians, and yet he called them all the church of God, sanctified, holy saints. Was he giving them a false assurance of faith? In other words, was he telling them 
that they were Christians, that they were forgiven, that they were loved, when they really weren't. I think a lot of uh, preachers are really scared to make these kind of promises from the pulpit because we think, well, I don't want to give false assurance. But I think what that's really about is deep down we think, because they have to do something if they're going to get this. But if they hear it and believe that it applies to them, it does. There's no such thing as a false assurance of faith. If someone hears the assurance of the gospel and believes it applies to them, that is called faith. Look at this. There you go. Um, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is the promise of the gospel. That if we hear it and we believe it, if you can dare to believe it, you are holy saints. And that's good news. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, Sam's going to come set up communion. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the introduction to 1 Corinthians. Thank you that before you, through Paul, addressed these sinful people as sinful people, you addressed them as your beloved sons and daughters, as holy saints. God, would that be true? Would you let that be true of us? Would you give us a glimpse of how big the gospel is and how big your love really is for us? Would you give us the faith and the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to act out of who we really are, not out of who we feel like we are? or who we're told that we are. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.